This is a trigger warning. This episode of Exodus contains strong language and descriptions of sexual violence. The Messiah of the mission at Kwasizabandu, Elo Stegen, is standing in the valley of a thousand hills, talking to a reporter. In 1966, when the Great Revival started and broke out in these areas, many people came to hear the word of God. But then strangely, the sick were touched during the proclamation of the word. He tells the reporter, and I use the term reporter loosely, how it all started at Mapumulo. That is where they prayed for revival, and that is where it came to pass. As we studied God's word and God standard for us, it touched our hearts, it broke our hearts, and we cried in desperation to God that he should be merciful and work as in the days of old. It's hard to overstate the importance of the alleged events at Mapumulo. It was at Mapumulo where the prophetess Hilda Dube first saw that Erlo is the Messiah. The Spirit of God suddenly started working. He came over this place, over us, like the rushing of a mighty wind. Exactly as written in the Bible. Yes, and then he literally went into the houses and brought the people. No church bells ringing, no invitations, they just came. The Holy Spirit convicted us to such an extent that we started confessing. People were convicted and they made restitution. And that was the preparation. More people would come. God would save their souls and even touch them uh, physically. God would touch them while the word would be preached. Many would be healed. While making their life right with God, repenting, confessing their sin, putting things right that are wrong, God's power was let loose. And so, on a windy day 54 years ago, the cult of Erlo Stegen is born. Revival breaks out in the Valley of a Thousand Hills. Also present in 1966 at Mapumulo is Erlo Stegen's youngest brother, Manfred Stegen. I've never spoken. Maybe I have a, I have a chance. I'm the only one. Who else? The events at Mapumulo still haunt Manfred Stegen to this day. If you ask me something, I want to speak the truth. This story goes back to Mapumulu. That's where it went wrong. Right in the beginning, before anybody, before anything, that's already when things went wrong. This is Exodus, chapter 4. I'm Nuktula Manyati. Along with my colleagues at News24, we spent the past month highlighting abuse at the Kwasizabantu mission in KwaZulu-Natal. This podcast has chronicled abuse in the late 80s and early 90s, but the abuse seems to have carried on unabated. This is why this investigation has mattered so much to all of us. In the words of Erica Bornman, who is 49 and lives in Cape Town, I cannot carry on living my lovely life knowing that such grievous injustices are being done and I have knowledge about it. There is still so much abuse happening at Kwasisabantu. There are more children being born there. There are more children being raised there. 
I'm hoping this investigation will shine so much light. Today in our final episode, we find out what happened to Erika and Ilimbilo Malinga after they left the mission. All the way through this project, I've kept asking myself the same question. What do people see in Erla Stegen? How did he become the messiah of the mission at KSB? If you ask his fanatical disciples, of which there have been tens of thousands, they may mention a series of miracles in this regard. They might mention the prophecies of Hilda Dube at Mapumulu, and they will definitely mention how Hilda's daughter, Lydia Dube, was allegedly raised from the dead by Erlo Stegen. I also read in a book about your work that a girl that died was brought back to life again. Uh, yes, that was Lydia. She died in the afternoon, late in the evening. The Lord brought her back to life again. Here, a decade or so later, Lydia Duba herself talks about her resurrection. Just like Erlo, she remembers the day well. And just like Erlo, she enjoys talking with the translator in tow. <laughs> And after my death, when my soul left my body, I came to heaven and there I met with a great life that I didn't know before. And the light lights up everything. There's nothing hidden in this light. And heaven, there's no Indian, there's no black, there's no white. Everybody has changed and becomes a new person. And then Jesus called me and he said, I would like you, my child, to return to earth. Look at the people, they are crying. And they are crying because they have lost somebody who was working together with them. But all is well that ends well. When my soul returned to my body, the person who was guarding over me said, I breathed a deep breath and then I sat up in bed and I asked them for some water. They brought me two jugs of water, which I finished there and then. I was very thirsty. And they were amazed because I hadn't been able to eat or drink for a few days before my death. By now, Erla's knack with the sick and the dead had brought his church quite the following. Soon, they would need their own mission, a place that they could call home. The news spread to near and far, and so the people came, so we were faced with the problem, what, where should we put these people? We'd have 100, 200 sick people. We couldn't just send them home again. So we prayed for a place where these people could stay. Then after four years, we got and that's where we started building a hospital. We didn't have the means, finances. I just said, Lord, even if it's just a hut built with mud and wood, as long as God is present, then we are satisfied. And uh, God graciously undertook that we could start building, and that's how the hospital came into being. Uh, a hospital without a doctor, without nurses, without uh, medicines uh, is a bit of strange in our thinking. Are you against doctors? No, not at all. We can thank God for them. Mm -hmm. But you don't make use of them? It does not at the hospital, it's just a place of prayer. 
And when people don't heal, is it a disappointment for them? Not if they are helped spiritually. Then they can even thank God for the sickness. As many have said, we praise God for the sickness. If it wouldn't be for the sickness, we wouldn't have come to know the Lord Jesus. Is it what you're expecting in reality, that one uh, heals and the other doesn't heal? Well, we never know. Uh, one never can say. And you don't guarantee people that they will be healed? No. As long as they are healed spiritually, receive forgiveness of their sins and set free from bondage. As Erla's fame grows, so does his power. If you want revival, he says, you must cut your ties with earthly things. Next to a bonfire, he preaches damnation or salvation. Around him, people carry televisions and clothes and radios and jewelry and ornaments to a fire that crackles like burning electronics. Every man in this world today is a slave to the devil. But Jesus came to set us free. We couldn't free ourselves because we were bound with chains of evil. Even in a church that subjugates women, Erlo Stegen remained tight with the few. Thanks to the gift of prophecy, Hilda Dube was of course one of them. But even more so was her daughter Lydia. Around them, a small group of powerful black women grew. They were known as the Sissies or the Mamas. And they confounded what you'd expect from KSB. They were powerful despite being black and female. And they were not expected to get married to men. They're almost scarier, actually, than Elo himself. I think Elo still wants to appear as the fatherly figure. They have no such compunction. They, they don't care to appear motherly or maternal or loving at all. They are just like, you are the worst person on earth and we will punish you and you will suffer and you will be sorry. I was definitely more scared of those women than I was of, of Elo, for sure. At the mission, these women, the Sisis, fulfill some crucial tasks. This includes virginity testing. The black girls coming home from holidays and having to queue in public so that the mamas can do virginity checks on them. They would line up on that road and go in where the mamas would check them. To have your hymen checked, someone needs to stick a finger into your vagina and check. That is sexual assault. Every single one of those girls was assaulted sexually after every single holiday. And everybody knew this. Even the boys knew what was happening. And they would walk past these girls and snigger because they knew this is what was happening. They made such a, such a spectacle of this. It's just another, another way that they reinforce female inferiority. Because how do you check whether a boy is a virgin or not? But you can check a girl. Multiple black women, including Elimbilo Malinga, have confirmed to News24 that, as teenage girls, they were subjected to virginity testing at the hands of the Sisis. It all forms part of the KSB pattern, Erica says. It is not just misogynist, it is racist too. Even though this is supposedly a multiracial society, it is racist in the extreme. And the black kids have it so much worse than us white kids. And even though I'm a nobody and I don't belong to anyone important, 
I still have it so much better than them. In fact, my mother would threaten me if I do something wrong. She says, you are going to go stay in the hostel with those girls. And she tells me that it's enough of a threat for me to, you know, toe the line because their circumstances are horrible. That said, being a black man is still better than being a white girl. When Erica's counselor, Muzigunene, continues to sexually abuse her, she knows there's nothing she can say. I expressed my misgivings. I expressed that I didn't feel comfortable with this. Um, but he continued. So m- my opinion and my um, body and my thoughts didn't matter an iota. It did not matter to him that I did not want this. And yes, I continued to see him. But that's because I didn't know that I could say no. I continue, when he calls me, I go, like this good little sheep. Um, But I don't know that I can say no. I can't say no. Who am I to say no? And then one day, after years of living at the mission, Erica Bornman finally catches a break. My father's brother, who is living in Sweden, comes to visit South Africa, and I meet him for the first time. For the first while, I can't actually speak to him. He's smaller than my dad, but his mannerisms, the way he holds his head, the way he, his face moves, it's my dad, you know? And he then visits us at the mission. And after he leaves, he contacts me. I learned later that he said to my aunt, who lives in Pietermaritzburg, his sister, that we've got to get Erica out of that place. By this point, Erica is skin and bone. Even Erlo Stegen has given up praying for her. It is 1991, and Erica is anorexic, a 20-year-old woman weighing 44 kilograms. Anorexia can be deadly, but it's apparently not recognized by the mission. Finally, Everyone at Casey decides what is best for Erica. She will have a little operation. There was a doctor in Pretoria who was friendly with a mission and my mother took me to see him. And how these doctors could look at me at weighing 44 kilograms and not say there's something seriously wrong with this girl, I don't understand to this day. He decides that there's nothing for it. He's going to have to cut me open from my navel down to my pubic bone and take everything out and examine it. I come around after the operation and I'm told that all they found was a slightly inflamed appendix, which he removed, and a cyst on my one ovary, which he removed the cyst, apparently not the ovary, although who knows but that there isn't actually anything wrong with me. So they sewed me back up and I recuperated at a cousin's place for a few days and then went back to the mission. Ten days later, I was on a plane to Europe. What happened is, Erica's uncle convinced his sister-in-law, Erica's mum, to allow her daughter to come to Europe to study German in Germany and French in France. 
It is not known why her mother says yes, although of course she does have a condition. She says yes, you can go, provided you spend your time, all your time, at people who are affiliated to the mission. And there are lots of them. In Switzerland, in Germany, in France, the Netherlands, Belgium, there are lots of people affiliated to the mission. So off I go. I escape this man's clutches because he can't call me in for a confessing of sins slash fondling session while I'm overseas. For the first time in her life, Erika gets to travel alone and away from the mission. She stays in Switzerland for three months with the KSB family who are actually very kind and then a KSB family in France who are even kinder still. Her French is improving, but her health is not. Then one Sunday morning, she's in church. Not a real church, but a KSB service on a farm in the mountains in the beautiful southeast of France. In the middle of the sermon, Erika experiences the greatest pain she has ever had. She is rushed to a hospital in a town in the mountains. My one lung collapsed and Dr. Magakian, the doctor who attended to me, said to me that if you don't start eating, you are going to die. And that was the first time that I made a connection between that food is nutritious and that I need the nutrients from food in order to stay alive. And so Erica starts to eat. As her body grows stronger, so does her spirit. And then it is 1992 in the Republic of South Africa. Good morning. Welcome to the special TV One newscast. This is SABC's Ellen Erasmus on the then TV One. White South Africans are flocking to the polls today in a referendum which will decide the future of South Africa. In short, the white right wing wanted to stop the fall of apartheid. So President F.W. de Klerk called a referendum and hoped to prove the right wing wrong. Voting began briskly in Pretoria this morning, where President F.W. de Klerk and his wife Marika brought out their votes. Is, is White South Africans have been asked whether they support the negotiations for a new South Africa. In the Johannesburg suburb of Greenside, a long queue of voters waited for polling booths to open at 7 o'clock this morning. The scene repeats across the country. Outside the City Hall in Durban, long queues developed soon after 7 o'clock. A surge of voters hits polling stations nationwide. In Bloemfontein, the rain has come with referendum day. Election officials I spoke to expect a high turnout. Everywhere, people are up early. Polling was brisk in East London from the time the booths opened this morning. Well, almost everywhere, people are up early. Voting stations in Cape Town reported a slow start. However, the tempo is expected to increase later in the day. In the end, more than two-thirds of white South Africans voted in favour of a new South Africa effectively neutralizing the Afrikaner right-wing. As the nation wades out of apartheid at Wasizabandu, an exodus is also coming. There's little left to reveal about Erika's childhood, but what about the big man himself? Stories from Erla's childhood are scarce, but if you're going to understand Erla Stegen, we must understand the beginning of his life. In the winter of 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, I visited the Stegen family farm about an hour's drive from the mission. Erlo's youngest brother, Manfred Stegen, still lives on the farm where him and his brothers were born and has decided to speak about Erlo in public for the first time. 
In the history of our family, there's never been a missionary or pastor or evangelist. It was something abnormal for us. My parents never stood in his way, never. They encouraged him. He was a boy like any other boy. There was a girl, her name was Mary, and I was one day standing here on the veranda, and he was about 50 meters away. And I stood and I said, Mary, 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 Mary. The next thing, a stone came and knocked me on my head. He wanted me to stop it, so he took a stone, but he didn't realize that he hit me on my head. I'm just trying to say with that, he was a boy like any other boy. He was no angel, he was a boy. Still, he wasn't quite a boy, just like the other boys. As a young boy, he would go and visit people in their homes, Zulus. Erlo Zulu was poor, but he was passionate, which made him want to speak the language. It made him want to be able to serve God. I think that was what drove him. A young man who was dependent on God to guide him, teach him, and that made us honor him as a brother. I mean, he was honored by his elder brothers. I honored him for it, that he was prepared to leave home to say goodbye to everything and follow Christ. And then came the events at Mapumulo. We wanted to be part of it. We were hungry for God. We weren't following a man. When they told us that God was doing something out of the ordinary, I didn't want to stay behind, nor did my wife. And that's why we went to Mapumulo. There were things that I could not understand. At the beginning of Mapumulu, there were certain people, a certain co-worker had the gift, call it prophecy, call it tongues, that influenced my brother. At the time, Pastor Engelbrecht often said, oh, he wished he had something, a handmaiden like Erlo had in Hiltadube. Very briefly, before Elo became the Messiah, somebody else was, Pastor Anton Engelbrecht. This is not something that KSV talks about, but it was under Pastor Engelbrecht that revival first broke out in the Valley of a Thousand Hills, almost 20 years before Erlo and Hilda Dube made it so. We went over there, we were called in a room, and we prayed together, and then Mrs. Dube Hilda prayed in tongues, and it had to do with Anton Engelbrecht. And the wording was, he is building up an estate. He's gathering money for himself. I had to accept what I was being told, but only after years seeing things that I asked myself, where did it go wrong? You can now say, Sizabantu is at breaking point. The problem started right in the beginning. These days, Manfred Stegen finds it strange that the Holy Spirit would have been poured out at Mapumulo. In the church history, he was poured out at 
Pentecost and never again. Why would it happen now at Mapumulu? That phenomena of the wind doesn't come again in the church history. We asked Manfred about the early days of KSB. It was at the height of apartheid. We had thought, I was part of it, to start something at Mapumulu, but we weren't allowed to. And that's why this farm was ideal. He means the farm Yamardal, where the mission was built. It's on the boundary of KwaZulu. Whites could come in and blacks could come in. Nobody could say anything. So geographically, it was ideal. And we all, not only his brothers, we put shoulders onto the wheel and we built and we pulled out trees. We worked. We haven't got water. We're trying everything. We're sinking boreholes. We don't get water. Always hoping that with the next borehole, maybe we'll get water. But as the mission grows, a distance develops between Manfred and Erlo. It all crystallizes for Manfred one day when they have the mother of all confrontations. Manfred has heard some distressing news and he wants Erlo to do something about it. My son, Jimmy, and I went to Erlo and said, Erlo, in the last week or so, one of your co-workers raped that girl. Erlo's answer was, she's a loose girl. In any case, bring me a witness, then I'll accept it. He nearly decapitated us. How can we blame one of his co-workers? You could never touch one of his co-workers. So we looked at each other and said, well, we're wasting our time and went home. The Bible says, love covers a multitude of faults. Our love for the place just covered the things that we see. Uh -uh. We wanted to ask Elo about this and many other matters, but the mission has repeatedly declined to avail him. I find it really interesting that we haven't heard from Erlo himself. I've called him a liar. I've called him a horrible bully, a manipulator. Why isn't he speaking? I just wonder, what are they hiding? But Manfred Stegen knows, and he wants us to know too. Erlo's got Alzheimer's. He talks the biggest rubbish. I can't even converse with him. He's a dying man. I had an appointment to visit Erlo, and I wanted to confront him about certain things that I wanted to say to him, Erlo, was it you or was it were you influenced by somebody else? They didn't allow me to go and visit him. He's still my brother. And that I, as a brother, am not allowed to come and visit him. In March 2020, Manfred goes to visit his brother at the mission. He now believes it was the last time he would ever see him. I saw him now in March, and we had such a lovely time. We speak about wind and the weather. We leave religion out of it. After two or three hours, I said, hey, better go now. I was there with my wife. He says, no, Manfred, stay. 
He says, Manfred, this was lovely. Please come again soon. Try it again a few times. No go. It's a long road out of the mission. Just ask Dilimbilo Malinga or Erika Bornman. Erika returned to the mission after seven months in Europe. She's welcomed back against a wall by Muzi Gunene, who is intent on picking up their so-called relationship exactly where he left it. After her third night back at the mission, she makes up a story to go visit her aunt in Pietermaritzburg. She does not pack a thing because then her mother would know what Erika's up to. She has decided to build herself a life outside the mission. And so she did. After Tlilimpilo was kicked out, she managed to finish her matric in Guamashu. She has an unbreakable spirit. After a childhood of violence and neglect, she stood up, dusted herself off, and became a mother and a career woman. She's now 45 and lives in Durban. In our final interview with her, we asked Glenbilo if, today, you could wheel a huge PA system onto the airstrip that runs through the mission, what would you want to say to everyone who can hear you? People at Kwasiza Bantu, my name is Kalimpilo Malinga. I left the mission, and since my living, I'm actually grateful I left, because I have since learned that the God that I was introduced to does not exist. The God that you serve is cruel, and the God that you subscribe to is man-made. You have allowed yourself to have a man control your lives in the name of God. I have since learned that God loves me and in return for me to be able to love him I need to love myself first and I don't think you have begun to love yourself when you are submitting to somebody who does not love God himself because if you dig deep down you will realize that it is the half-truth. So the half-truth is, is, is worse than a lie, in fact, because one day you wake up and you realize that all of this was a lie. You cannot buy your time back. You cannot get everything that was intended for you in this life. You only have one life. Whatever time is remaining for you, make the best of it. Have a good relationship with your family. Some of us woke up to the fact that the, the nuclear family that I thought was my family, when they could no longer support me, I needed a support structure. And so I had to find my relatives. And so it is important for you to acknowledge your relationships and, and build relationships with your family. Even the Bible says that the person who does not take care of their family is worse than a heathen. And I don't know what God they serve when they start to isolate you from your family. We've seen other people dying at the mission and how painful their deaths were because no one in their family was able to come close to. Time is not waiting for any of us, but time is now for you to act and stand up and own your life and not give your life to someone else to live it for you. Now that you know the truth, it is up to you what you're going to do with the truth. And the truth is, 
You have been living a lie. Own up and start living your truth. And your truth starts today. Selim Bilo and Erica have joined forces with News24 to help prevent other children from growing up in the cult of Kwasizabandu. We asked Erica whether the investigation has managed to satisfy her quest. Oh, the impact this has had is, is enormous. I feel lighter. I, I feel better. I feel more whole. I actually feel quite proud of myself. I thought that me telling my story would help other people. I never thought it would help hundreds of people. I thought I was okay. I never realized how much healing I still had to do myself. I knew that I was a good person and a kind person and a brave person, but I didn't know it because every time someone tells me that, I moved beyond words. Until very recently, it just hasn't felt like those words describe me. Erica felt a difference within a day of the broadcast of episode one. It is Sunday afternoon. Exodus launched yesterday and I'm in my kitchen and I've got my Apple playlist playing and it's Heartbreak Hotel because I just love it. I love old-fashioned music. We don't have the budget to license Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley. So just imagine that you're hearing it. And I find myself just spontaneously dancing. And I don't know when last I did this. <laughs> and I just suddenly realize I feel so free. I feel so released. I feel so relieved and I just feel so light. And then I just started crying because it was just such a relief. So yeah, I've, I've been crying a lot. <laughs> I don't think any of us imagined the magnitude of what we were doing and the magnitude of the response and the outcry and South Africans going, we will not drink this water. I hope that what we have achieved is that status quo will never be the same at that place again. I hope we've disrupted everything. They've got a turnover over a billion. This Aquela water, it's a gold mine. One of the things that, that the mission has against me is that I rejected God. I don't think that I rejected God. I certainly rejected their God. Shortly after I left the mission, I no longer considered myself a Christian. And many people have tried over the years to convince me to give Christianity another go. But I've come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what you believe in. What matters is how you live, how you treat people, how you treat the world, how you treat yourself. You can have whatever belief you like. If you act like an idiot and you are horrible and you are nasty, then how's that going to help you? I just want to be good. I just want to be a good person, live a good life, be kind, be good to people around me. And when I screw up, say sorry and make it right. And I think that's enough. 28 years after leaving the mission, Erica feels she can finally move on. Trauma is something that happens to you. It's not your choice. But when it happens to you, that trauma is yours and you have to deal with it. So it's your responsibility. And I've kind of over the years gone to therapy and I've kind of thought that I've dealt with it. But in the last year, I've realized that I haven't really completely dealt with the 
very, very deep-seated beliefs that I have about myself and about the world. And it is in this process that I've also had a lot of healing myself. But it's also holding that pain for other people and the responsibility of knowing that kids are being destroyed and I know about it and I'm not doing anything about it. And I think that has been a heavy burden on me. And now that I've done something about it, I, oh, I can just breathe. Honestly, the support has been overwhelming. Just so amazing to just hear people just go, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And made it all worthwhile. I think that collectively we are helping one another heal. I really believe that. I feel so liberated. I think I've been carrying the burden of knowing that this is happening for so long. And now that the spotlight is finally on it, I feel like I can let go a little bit now. It feels as though something has been coiled very, very tightly and it's been loosened. So I have had like a week of sleepless nights where um, I sleep maybe three or four hours and then I wake up at two and, and I just can't go back to sleep. And I've had quite a lot of realizations in this time. But the, the one image that came very, very strongly two mornings ago was of me putting all, this, all these demons and the skeletons, and now, now I'm going to mix my metaphors, in a box and burying it very deep. And I had to do that in order to survive. I did not have the tools to look at it. But there came a time where they started crawling out from under that soil. And they left that box. And they started terrorizing me. The demons and the skeletons. Demons with these socket eye sockets and these red hot coals in their eye sockets. And the skeletons shaking their bones around. And I, for many years was petrified of their visits because I couldn't, I didn't know how to deal with them and I just wanted to run away from them and I would beg them to please just get back in their box or back in the closet and just leave me alone. But then, slowly but surely, I got to the point where when a demon would arrive, I would look at it and go, okay, you're here. Let's chat. What have you got to teach me? Teach me. Tell me. And then fuck off. And the demons slowly started diminishing. Because they would teach me what they came to teach me. And then they would fuck off. And disappear into thin air. The skeletons, a little bit trickier. Because if I address them, then... The, the, it's the shame for me the skeletons are the shame you don't want people to know about these things because if they know they're going to judge you but I had this absolute vision of me opening flinging open my closet door and saying to these skeletons come out let's dance who wants to waltz who wants to salsa throwing open the closet doors and dancing with them because they have so much to teach me about myself and when I stop being scared of them they turn from scary to almost friendly and almost paternal and maternal and almost caring if bony fingers can be caring um, we dance they teach me some steps I teach them a step or two and then they would disappear 
And so right now, there probably are only about two or three skeletons left in my closet. And I'll, I'll dance with them one day, but not like right now. At the start of this investigation, I wanted to understand Kwasizabandu and the girls who went to school there. I've got to know two of them now, Erica Bornman and Tlilimbilo Malinga. In telling the story of their exodus from the mission, I've come to understand why I did not grow up there. The answer is luck. Nothing but luck. As a child, you must go where your parents decide. My parents sent me to a comparatively lovely high school around the bend from KSB. But Erica's parents and Gilimbilo's decided otherwise. And it's taken their daughters decades to unlearn the lessons that Erlo Stegen taught them. In 1994, apartheid has been defeated. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy. Joy that we can loudly proclaim from the rooftops, free at last. But the horrors at KSB seemingly continued long after freedom dawned in our land. In the course of this podcast, we at News24 have learned more about KSB than we ever expected. Today, the mission is still standing, even though it may finally be compiled to face up to the testimonies of those who had suffered abuse. Okwele Water has turned toxic pending the outcome of investigations with most of South Africa's major supermarket chains having cut ties with them in the interim. It'll take months to unpack everything we've learned, and News24 will still be reporting on KSB for years to come. But Erica and Ilimbilo are ready for what they deserve. Freedom. Freedom from the mission. Freedom from abuse and neglect. Freedom from the burning hell and the co-workers and the fondlings and the beatings and the teachings that women are less worthy. For the two heroes of the story, it's been a long walk to freedom. In 2020, both Erica and Ilimbila have finally, truly left behind the mission in the valley of a thousand hills. They get to walk away as free women. We all wish Erica and Ilimbila rest and love and light and finally, in 2020, the feeling of a full stop. As always, there's plenty of reaction from KSB and Okwele at news24.com. This has been Exodus Chapter 4, Revival. It was produced by me, Noctula Magnati, and written by me and Dion Wiggett, who is also the creator. The sound engineer is Sean Jeffress and our production manager is Charlene Droet. Field recording by Alyoshka Kolstok. Reporting on this story is by Tammy Peterson and Azara Karim with editors Sheldon Marias and Paul Herman. The editor-in-chief is Adrian Besson. Special thanks for this episode goes to Mpora Burife and Shante Schatz. Music courtesy of Getty Images and Epidemic Sound. Edit help for the entire series from Alison Pope. If there's anything about KSB that you'd like to share with us, you can mail us at exodus at 24.com. 
If anything came up for you while listening to this episode, you can always call the South African Depression and Anxiety Group on 0800-456-789. This has been a production of News24.